to take a Bible and turn to the Gospel of Matthew. We'll read the end of chapter 19 and beginning of chapter 20 of Matthew's Gospel. I'd like you to turn. Going to pick up where we left off two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, if you were here, we looked at Matthew 19, 16 and following about Jesus' conversation with a young man who asked him what he needed to do to inherit eternal life. And we saw where Jesus saw that this young man's main problem was he did not recognize that he, like all of us, is a sinner. And so Jesus, to point his finger on the area of his idolatry, said to go and sell everything he had, give it to the poor, and come and follow him. And the young man walked away sad. And then Jesus turned to his disciples, and he said that it's easier, how hard it would be for a wealthy man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And they are quite perplexed. So let me begin reading in verse 26, in the midst of their astonishment over what Jesus had said. 26 of chapter 19. But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus told them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Now that introduces our parable beginning in chapter 20. Let's see verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, and to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day long? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers, pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. But when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne this burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Let's pray together. 
And Father, our souls are thirsty and hungry, and you say that your word is food. So we pray you nourish us now from your word. We're not here by accident. You brought us here at this very moment, and we pray that we might meet with you. In Jesus' name, amen. What is a parable? James Boyce said, A parable is a story taken from real life or a real-life situation from which a moral or spiritual truth is drawn. They are not fables where you have talking animals and walking trees. They are not allegories where every detail represents something else. A parable, good definition, is is hard to improve on the old Sunday school definition. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Now, this particular parable is found only in Matthew's gospel. Some of the other parables are found in several gospels, but not this one. But it is bracketed before and after with the same saying, which is, many who are first will be last and the last first. And that's very important when you see that, then that has great bearing on what the main point of the parable is. Now, I first had that phrase brought to my attention many years ago as a college student. I was on a Campus Crusade for Christ Beach Project in Panama City, Florida. And a man, once he found out that I and several of the other guys working there were with a Christian organization, he would go around and say, Matthew 19.30, Matthew 19.30. I never paid any attention to Matthew 19.30 before then, but it was many who were first to be last and the last first. Well, this man lived with... uh, the reality that his grandfather had ridden a bicycle down to where Panama City Beach is now in the early 1900s, and he had scraped together money by doing odd jobs and selling things and was able to buy uh, large plots of beachfront property that are there to this day. Nobody wanted it. This was pre-air conditioning, so he had his choice. And he bought large sections. And then when it became popular, decades later, he became very wealthy. And in his will, he left a lot to not this man, but his two brothers. There were three brothers. And the other two got a whole lot, and I would see them when I was working there, driving around in their late model vehicles. And yet this guy driving an old pickup truck and him going, Matthew 1930, Matthew 1930, because he lived with the expectation and hope that in heaven things were going to be right. He'd been last in this world when it came time for the inheritance, but he would be first next time. I really think he was more interested in them being last rather than him being first. Now, a total distortion of the Scripture, but very memorable given how the part it played in his life. The phrase... The phrase helps to explain something that we find throughout the parables and throughout the teaching of Jesus, and that is called the principle of reversal. Reversal, where what we think should be right is reversed, and it goes the other way. So the reversal is first, last, last, first. Now, the parable underlines this point, and from it we learn how the first will become last, and how the last will be first. 
And it all has to do with God's grace. It is all God's grace. Okay, so the context. I wanted to go back and read from chapter 19 because I want you to see that Jesus tells this in response to Peter's comment that, Lord, we've left everything to follow you as they watched watched the rich young ruler walk away. He said, "We've, we've done what he would not do. We have left everything and followed you. And Jesus assures them that there will be a reward. But he's also telling them that in the kingdom of God, in God's economy, those rewards are based on God's grace. And God's grace always gives more than anything that can be earned. And so the opening words for this parable is, the kingdom for the kingdom of heaven is light. So this is describing God, describing his kingdom with this parable. Let me retell it to you, though we just read it. I'll kind of put it in terms we might can understand easier. Here here it is in a nutshell. The owner of this sizable vineyard, uh, many grapes, and he's determined on a particular day, that is the day they have to be harvested. They've got one particular day that they've got to capitalize on. So he's got all these servants, and they go out into the vineyard at 6 o'clock in the morning. But he needs more. He needs more workers if they're going to finish this in this one day. So he goes to the marketplace at the crack of dawn. And he agrees to hire some guys that are there wanting wanting day labor. And he pays them the going wage of the day, which is one denarius. So already at the same hour, between five and six, some others are standing there waiting for someone to come and employ them. And so he he gets them, and and so they agree to this 10-hour day, essentially. So they and uh, the normal workmen and these new workmen, they're out in the vineyard. And the owner goes back. He goes back to where there were other uh, would-be workers standing around. And now it's between 8 and 9 o'clock. And they won't work, so he hires them. In this case, they don't agree on a wage. He just says, I'll pay you fairly. He does the same at noon. He does the same at 3 p.m. And even up to 5 p.m. It would be a 12-hour workday from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So even as late as 5 p.m., He goes and he gets some more workers. Then he tells his foreman as the day comes to an end, pay the men. So he pays the workers, beginning with those who were hired at 5 p.m. He says pay them first. So the owner pays each worker the same amount. He pays everyone a denarius, the amount that was determined and promised to those that were hired at 6 a.m. Well, the workers who've been out there all day in the heat and worked that much longer they think this is unfair, or at least some of them do, and so they grumble to the landowner. We worked hard all day. We sweated out there in the heat. You give each one of us a denarius? Those others came, they worked for one hour? One hour, and they received the same that we received and worked nine hours longer than they did? Now, the landowner doesn't get angry in the parable, but he defends himself, and he asks some rather striking questions. So he addresses one of the laborers, obviously the spokesman of the group, and he says, friend, friend, I am not being unfair to you. Did not you agree to work for one denarius? I mean, that was our agreement. I'm fulfilling our agreement. And so the man's act, the worker's accusation of unfairness is is nothing more really than a cover for greed and envy. That's the bottom line. It's not that he's been treated unfairly. He's just greedy. And so no one's been treated unfairly. 
The landowner's been generous to those who were hired later. And so while this man voices his envy and greed, the landowner really points to his heart when he says, or do you begrudge my generosity? Do you begrudge my generosity? That's it. That's the end of the story. Now, what are some lessons we learn? Remember, it's about the kingdom. It's about God. We learn from here and throughout the Bible that God is a generous God. Over and over and over again, the Bible shows forth that God is generous, that he blesses people without regard to our merits. And he does that in spite of our sins. He was generous from the beginning. Think of the Garden of Eden. God created this garden, and he placed the first man and the first woman there, and he gave them one prohibition. He said, from any tree of the garden you may freely eat, except from that one particular tree. So all this was okay. One had a do-not-eat sign on it, so to speak. And so we may think, well, all the rest of the garden was black and white. All the rest of the trees and the fruit and so forth must have looked really bad, and that one tree was the only one in color, and everything else looked bad. No. Apparently, it was a whole myriad of beautiful trees and fruit and available food. You ever stood in the supermarket and just (laughs) paused and looked at all the fruit and the produce and think about I pause all the time because I never know where I am in the grocery store, and so I'm pausing and looking and trying, but I know where that section is. And you just think, think in the Garden of Eden. We can imagine, I don't know what kind of fruits they were, but perhaps peaches and plums and pears and apples and oranges. Uh, This dazzling array. Why did God do that? He could have created all food to be this gray soupy matter when he created us. He said, well, that'll supply their nutrients three times a day. No, he gives this vast array of, of, of taste and colors and sight. That's God's goodness. Then he get, he's good, we see him creating marriage. He did more for Adam. He said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. God could have left Adam uh, without a companion. He could have dreamed up some other way to multiply the human race. Why did God do this? Because it's his disposition to be generous. He anticipated and provided for every need that Adam would have. So what happens after they sin in Genesis chapter 3? Did God cease being generous? Did God stop being, being gracious at that time? No. He, he is merciful. He is gracious to Adam and Eve. <clears throat> it says in chapter 3 verse 21, He made garments to cover them out of skin. Well, we know that that's foreshadowing the covering of Christ later, you know, that we would need to be covered with his righteousness. But God didn't have to do that. He saw their need for clothes, and out of his generosity and out of his grace and mercy, he provided. So God is gracious and generous because it is, it is his nature to do so. Second, God delights to do good. There's a passage in the book of Jeremiah that you probably recognize. You may not know the reference, but these words I hear quoted. And it says, they will be my people and I will be their God. You've heard those verses, right? Or that verse. And then it goes on and God says, he's speaking of a particular group of people. He says, I will give them singleness of heart and action. So they will always fear me for their own good. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good 
to them. Wow, I will never stop doing good to them. I will inspire them to fear me. I will rejoice in doing good and will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart. Amazing words. Amazing words of God's generosity and God's delight to do good. He says he will never stop doing good to these people. And it sounds appropriate, doesn't it? These must have been very worthy people who were wholeheartedly committed to serving God, right? For God to make a statement like that, that I will always do good to them? No, that's not who they were. The same passage describes these people as those who have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. They've done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. He's saying these words over his people who were captive in Babylon because of generation after generation of disobedience to him. And what does God promise for them? To rejoice in prospering them. Why? Because he delights in doing good. Do you recognize this? Do you wake up in the morning and say, God, you are a generous God. You delight to do good. He delights to show grace. In one of the closing books of the New Testament, Peter is writing, and he refers to God as the God of all grace. Bible commentators say it's the God of all superabounding grace. It's the highest term that could describe God's grace. Now, this was Peter. This was Peter who was the spokesman for the disciples and often spoke what was wrong and said wrong things, did wrong things. Jesus rebuked him strongly and said, get behind me, Satan. I mean, when you're you get rebuked from the Lord and your words are attributed to the devil, that's pretty strong. You, you might, you know, do a little reflection on that, not feel too good that night. Deny Jesus three times before his crucifixion. And yet, whom did God select to be the primary spokesman for the, the apostles after Jesus' resurrection? Peter, who had the privilege of preaching the first sermon when 3,000 people were saved. Peter. Whom did God choose to be the preacher when he opened wide the door of salvation to the Gentiles? It was Peter at the house of Cornelius. Had Peter become perfect? Had Peter progressed in his sanctification where now he had gotten his act together and everything he said was right and everything he did was correct? No. He was the same person. He's just a recipient of God's superabounding grace. So God delights to show grace. And he has a right to show grace. We can never obligate God. We can never make God our debtor. Think about this. I would assume all of us here probably owe someone or something, something. Some institution. Maybe you made a promise to a person that you're just now remembering (laughs) because it's just been brought up by the preacher. And you're thinking, oh yeah, I told them I'd call them or write them or I would do this. And you've obligated yourself through your promise. <clears throat> Maybe you owe money to a bank or some kind of loan. And so you're obligated. God owes no one anything. So even if you and I could perfectly obey all the commandments, which we can't, but even if we could, we would not be in a position to say, God, uh, I've met all the criteria. You owe me. Even if we could theoretically keep the commandments all we could say is we are unworthy servants anything we have is by your grace so the workers in the parable that had been out there all day 
those from the early morning, they thought the owner was in their debt. That they, because they had worked the longest, they wanted to claim that because they had worked the longest, that the owner owed them something, something more than they had agreed on, one denarius. And so the owner rejects that idea. And so we have promises that God's given through the Bible, such as seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. But that doesn't make God your debtor. That's a promise. And so God is not in our debt. We can never put God under obligation to do something for us because we have done, uh, because we've done something that we think warrants repayment. Now, this, this permeates our culture. This permeates the Christian church. This permeates this church to an extent. It just comes naturally to us that, that we think... I heard a person say years ago they had gone through a terrible trial and, and something good happened. They said, oh, well, God at least owed me that one. Well, they said out loud, I was standing right there, what many of us think. And we tend to t- think of pain and suffering like, well, I've been through this. Certainly God wouldn't do that because <laughs> it's, it's, we, we're thinking in terms of, you know, I've been serving since 6 a.m. Surely now he's going to do something different because I've served till 6 p.m. I hope you're good drivers. I hope you obey the traffic laws. But just imagine if you could obey every regulation, every law about a vehicle moving laws and so forth. You always stay within the speed limit. You always drive in the proper lane. You never text and drive. I really mean that one. I was coming up Wesleyan Drive the other day. I was coming up and I saw the car in front of me go off the shoulder. I saw another one. Then I I went off and this person comes through on our lane. (laughs) I see them with their phone up there. All right, don't do that. Okay, you get the idea. Uh, But I hope you you obey the... the, uh, the traffic laws. You never move your car, even in your driveway, without the seatbelt being buckled. You always come to a complete stop at four-way stop signs, even if no one else is around. You always use your turn signals. Some of us older ones use them even when we're not turning. <laughs> you always obey the traffic law. Does that mean at the end of the year that you expect to receive a reward check from the Department of Transportation? Perhaps a bonus in the mail? You know, we were going to charge you $600 for your tags for next year, but we saw your driving record. You've earned this. It's a little bonus. No. If you obey the law, does that obligate the state to reward you in any manner? No. You don't expect it. I hope you don't expect it. You're going to be disappointed. It's that we've done the minimum. If you obey the law, that's what's expected. So as the sovereign ruler of the universe... God has the right to require perfect obedience and faithful service from us without obligating himself. And so if we obey him in every way, we say with the Apostle Paul, I've merely done my duty. Terry Johnson has an excellent commentary on the the parables. He has some comments on this parable that were helpful. And he says he thinks we have two barriers that hinder us from appreciating the meaning of this parable. Uh, because this is one of my favorite parables, because it, the whole stress is the generosity of God. God is generous, and he doesn't ask for our permission to be generous. But here are two things that work against us with our American mindset, and biblical mindset, even, that, that we typically have an ingrained sense of equality 
and that can undermine this parable. Let me explain. This parable is not about how to manage labor. Those of you that are in management, don't take this parable and say, oh, it's in the Bible, let's go do this. That's not the point. It would not be a wise way to manage labor. It is not a lesson on how managers should handle workers. The purpose of the parable is to help us understand God's grace and generosity. And so we assume justice requires that all things that are given should be given equally and that all labor should be awarded proportionally. And so for us, that ideal often trumps the values in this, in this parable, such as rights to property, rights to business ownership, rights to sell or to buy or to give or to, to dispose of goods and services at agreed-upon rates. So here's what I mean. I have a big bag of candy, and I can sell this bag of candy or I can give it away if I decide to do so. If I decide I'll give everybody over here for some reason a piece of candy, but I will not give anyone here a piece of candy, ideally you should not begrudge the fact that you did not get any because I didn't have to give anybody anything. And so we put a high premium on this in human relations. No one owes me any part of what is rightfully his. It might be nice if he'd share it with me, but he's not obligated to. Now, politicians may wish to mandate that he give to me and use the powers of the state to confiscate wealth and call it justice and equality while they do so. But the parable assumes that the owner has the right to do with his payments what he wants to do. Now, when we think in that equality, we have a hard time with this parable. And it, well, not a hard time. It's just we fail to see the main meaning of it and appreciate it. Now, when it comes to that, that's even more important with our relationship with God. God is, he's got, so to speak, the bag of candy. He is not obligated to, to give it. He's not obligated to sell it or anything like that. So he's not obligated to bless us, to give to us, to share with us. He's not obligated to do that. In fact, he's not obligated to bless or share or give to anybody. He is not obligated to do so. And we don't like that. We think he is obligated. But that's not what the Bible teaches. It teaches if he blesses and gives to one and not another, it is his right. That's why Romans 9, 15 says, He has mercy on whom he has mercy and compassion on whom he has compassion. And we say that's not fair. But the Bible says God does not make distinctions. Romans 9, 18 says, He has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. It's saying that God has the right to deal with us as he chooses. Romans 9, 21, Does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and one for common use? If he distributes gifts and blessings to one and not another, the Bible says it is his right to do so. The second thing that causes us not to appreciate this parable is our built-in self-righteousness, the built-in default wiring in us that thinks, 
I can somehow or another earn my way to God or I can do something that will cover my sin and make him accept me. Imagine a world with a wicked Ebenezer Scrooge type person. He's robbed widows. He's starved orphans. He has abused the innocent all of his life. He's on his deathbed. And on his deathbed, his spiritual eyes are opened. He sees his sin. He hears of the gospel of Christ. He repents. He seeks forgiveness. He's flooded with a sense of the grace of God. He receives assurance that he's been made right with God. <clears throat> and then he dies. And do we not have just the slightest sense that there's something not quite fair about this? If we do, if we do have that slightest sense, it's because we still think in terms of salvation being about works and reward. So even Bible-believing Christians who ought to know better, we fall into the trap of thinking that they somehow or another deserve salvation while other people don't. And we say about the 11th hour convert, well, he doesn't go to heaven. And you think you, de you, think you deserve to go to heaven? Well, he was so evil. Well, aren't we? Well, he never righted his wrongs. He never made restitution. He never made up for his sins and corrected everything. Well, isn't that what the cross was all about? Doesn't Christ pay a debt that we owe? Well, he should be punished. Shouldn't we be punished? He deserves to pay for his wrongdoing. Don't we deserve the same? <laughs> See the problem the parable is exposing? And so we, it, it reveals that we begin slowly and in a subtle way to think of ourselves as deserving a place in God's kingdom while others don't. That we've earned a spot, maybe for our years of labor, which others haven't. And the point in the parable is that participation in the kingdom of God is all grace for every one of us. The covenant child, who's now gone... <laughs> The covenant child, the person who comes to faith in Christ in their 70s or 80s. It's all of grace, all of grace. So, I'm out of time. I just noticed a few words of application, just a few. To the young people, do not wait to serve God. Don't read this and think, oh, I can wait till the 11th hour. No, that's not the point at all. You don't know that there will be. Maybe right now is your 11th hour. Don't wait. Start now. Serve him now. When you come to the end, say, not what am I owed for for my years of service, but what a joy it has been to serve a loving and gracious God for so long. And recognize and give thanks for God's generosity throughout the day. Start your day, whatever your work, school schedule, or whatever, start off thanking God for his goodness, for his generosity, Practice the spiritual disciplines. Meditate on his generosity and his grace to you throughout the day. Rely on that generosity. Cast yourself upon it. Cast yourself on Christ if you've not met him yet. To recognize that when he died on the cross, even as we sung about earlier, he bore the sins of others, the grief that we, the guilt that was ours was put on him, punished in him in our place, and then when he was raised from the grave, he showed he was victorious over that death that we deserve. Put your trust in him. Let's pray together.
Our Father, we stand before a generous God, and we thank you for your generosity that's not owed to any of us, and yet we look at history, we look at Bible history, we look at our own lives, and you are generous, you are generous, you are generous, you are gracious, and you pour out your grace. We pray that we would live today and tomorrow and each day recognizing that. And we pray for those of us also with the call of the gospel, that those who perhaps today have heard it for the 900th time, and yet they've chosen not to believe. We ask today you might give them the gift of faith, the freedom to believe, new life, that they would trust in Jesus and be redeemed. In his name we pray. Amen.